1: Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. After a week that could charitably be described as turbulent, with scary graphs and dark predictions of economic doom, me and our deputy editor Alice Denby wanted to get the views of a free market economist on just what has gone wrong and whether the government can right the ship and deliver the supply-side reforms Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are so keen on. Our guest this week, Julian Jessup, will be well known to listeners as a regular CapEx contributor on all things economic. Julian's also worked at the Treasury, HSBC, Capital Economics, and was recently Chief Economist at the Institute of Economic Affairs. I began by asking him to set the scene for us on what market conditions are like at the moment and how that affected the response to the government's plans.
2: The most important thing that was happening was the the strength of the US dollar, uh, which reflected a, a, a number of things. Um, it was partly the expectation that the the U.S. central bank would raise interest rates more aggressively than than other central banks to to tackle inflation. Um, also, the fact that the U.S. economy is is less exposed to the energy crisis in in Europe, you know, by definition than, than Europe itself is, um, and also additional safe haven demand, uh, you know, picked over the last few days with. Um, Russia apparently sabotaging uh, gas supplies to, to Europe. That's the sort of thing that's very positive for the dollar as well. Um, so the, the dollar was strong across the board, not just against the pound, but against other major currencies too. And also bond yields were rising everywhere. So the, the cost of government borrowing was increasing significantly, not just in the UK, but... Uh, but in other markets. So uh, this was a particularly risky time for the government to do anything big and bold. And I think some of the detail of the announcements last week, you know, caught the markets out and were just that little bit too much. The, the straw, if you like, that broke the camel's back and triggered further sharp falls in the pound and big rises in government bond deals.
3: Yeah, I mean, that was my question. Uh, t- to what extent do you think that this was a question of the policies themselves that Quasi Kwarteng announced? And many of these, uh, I think we have to say, that we here at the Centre for Policy Studies support. You know, we were we were calling for um, uh, to the government to abandon the rise to corporation tax, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to what extent do you do you think it's the policies themselves, or, or the the kind of the presentation, the package as a whole? Well,
2: I don't necessarily think it's the policies themselves. Actually, the the bulk of what the government has has announced in the last few weeks has, has been received very positively. So, the uh, the energy price guarantee. I mean, we you know. We, we all hate it because it's not a well-targeted measure. It's extremely expensive, but um, it does at least significantly reduce the chances of a, of a deep recession over the over the winter. Um, the decision to um, cancel the increase in corporation tax and, and reverse the increase in national insurance, again, um, I think most people are reasonably comfortable with that. If you take those two things together, actually, the, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, which isn't obviously a, a fan of the government, um, We're saying that's going to significantly boost growth over over the next couple of years. So I think that went down well. Um, I think the supply side uh, agenda, you know, went down well, including things, by the way, like the um, reductions in stamp duty. Um, even the Institute for Fiscal Studies said that was the the right thing to do. So so the overall strategy, I think, is is still the the right one and was well received. Um, the problem was, you know, one or two particular aspects of the budget that weren't anticipated and. I think actually the, the 45p, uh, the abolition of the 45p additional rate of income tax was probably the, the one that was the the most sensitive um, because there was a perception that did you really need to do that now? It might be the right policy, and I think it is. But given that it's not going to come into effect until April next year anyway, would it not have been better to wait for you know, a full fiscal statement and all the accompanying OBR uh, numbers and analysis behind it? I, I think that was the. Uh, a tactical mistake. I think it was just a little bit too soon uh, to launch that part of the programme as well.
3: But on that one specifically, why does that, is that enough to explain why the markets have freaked out so much? Because it's not very fiscally significant, is it? It costs maybe 2 billion and could even essentially pay for itself because you'd get more revenue. Why, why, why is the reaction being so strong?
2: Well, you're, you're right. I mean, it's very frustrating that we're we're spending so much time talking about something that will only potentially cost a few billion and it might not cost anything at all. Um, I think it was more the the look and feel of it, the sort of turning a, a, a deaf ear to the concerns of the markets, which were, I think, perhaps exacerbated a bit when you know Kwasi Kwarteng on Sunday was saying this is the only the start and we're going to get further further tax increases to come. So there was a a sense in the markets that the the chancellor or the the government as a whole wasn't really bothered about how this was going to, going to land, um, and that just contributed to the to the nervousness. Um, and then you had various sort of technical factors kicking in, particularly the, the the problems in the in the pension fund industry. So because of you know rising interest rates, they had to to start selling government bonds in order to raise cash to make margin calls and. and uh, provide collateral. Uh, and that sort of exacerbated the move. So I'm afraid markets are, are often like this. It can be a small trigger, which very quickly you know, turns into to something much more serious. And uh, we end up where we were, which was the bank winner really had to intervene in the guilt market.
1: And um, just following up on Alice's last question, um, how much do you think that not providing, two things, I think, one, sacking the permanent secretary of the Treasury, and two, not providing an OBR forecast, how much do you think that has fed into people's anxiety, notwithstanding any of the policies?
2: Um, well, I think sacking the opponent sector of the Treasury, that, uh, I don't think people are too worried about that. I mean, it, it seems perfectly reasonable to me that if you you know take over a company, you get rid of the existing management if you weren't very happy with them. So I, I think that in itself wasn't too big a, a deal, but it does feed into this sort of general narrative of you know tearing up institutional structures and, and so on. Um, I think not publishing a full forecast um, they they could have got away with that if all they had done was basically confirm the things the markets were already expecting so that was specifically the um, the details of the energy price cap and also the um the abolition of the increase in corporation tax and the reversal of the next hike if, if they're basically stuck there then i think the markets would say okay fair enough we knew that was coming we're happy to wait for more details but because they did other things on top of that in particular the cuts in in income tax i think the markets felt well actually that was enough that you should really have said a bit more and also the absence of of details on the the medium term fiscal plan so Markets are still slightly in the dark about what the objectives are going to be. Um, They're relaxed about an increase in short-term borrowing. We understand why that's necessary. But what's the plan going to be to get debt down as a share of national income over the medium to longer term? So um, I don't think it's necessarily a mistake not to publish those those forecasts. And if if they'd stuck to what we were expecting, they wouldn't have had to. But because they went further than expected, I think the markets were looking for a bit more from the OBR.
3: I think people might be a bit surprised. I mean, I I think of the, the markets as a question of kind of spreadsheets and very empirical and its numbers and moving around columns. But it seems to me that they've, to some extent, taken a political judgment, and particularly the IMF statement that these measures might exacerbate inequality. Seems to me like a political judgment rather than purely an economic one that's been made here. Uh,
2: yes, I thought they... The IMF statement was a bit strange, I mean, I, I, I don't actually believe in, in, in shooting the messenger to some extent the IMF were just flagging up concerns in the in the markets about sustainability of the public finances, but um, it wasn't obvious to me why the IMF was also talking about uh, the impact on inequality, which is, um, I mean, if you, if you think inequality is, is an important issue as important as issue as others do. Um, that seemed to be taking very much the view that you judge a budget by its immediate distributional impact, not its longer-term impact on on growth and productivity, and therefore on real wages, investment, and and jobs. So it did seem to be quite a a political intervention in the way that it was done, but I mean to be fair, to I mean, the it, it wasn't really saying much more than than, than others were were saying, and I um, I think the the bigger issue in the markets was the um, the the, the sort of general sense of uncertainty about the dollar and about where bond deals were going. Um, And in that very febrile environment, it it was understandable that countries which were making the biggest policy changes, perhaps not explaining them as well as they could have done, uh, would be right in the front of the firing line.
1: Um, There's a danger here that when we're sort of commentators, especially, you know, non-expert commentators tend to lump a lot of things in together. So when we talk about the markets, we're talking about, you know, thousands upon thousands of different actors in different areas. And, you know, are there are there different things going on with, for example, you know, gilts, the currency and equities, or are they kind of all responding in the same way? So the pound's going down, gilt yields are going up. Footsie's uh, UK stocks are falling, um, or are there different kind of pressures that they're they're taking into account? Well, certainly the moves
2: in in currency markets and the the gilt market are, are very closely related. You know that that that's basically about um, you know combination of you know worries about interest rates um, and also whether the, the large amount of government borrowing can be funded without having to see a much weaker pound in order to you know, attract foreign investors into the country so so those two things are, are connected and it, it does look like you know when the when the pound goes down and uh then then guilt yields borrowing costs are likely to go up um, other markets view this um, a little bit differently i mean if you look at the the footsie that the main equity market in the uk um, it's sort of a mixed story here. The, a weaker pound is actually quite good for the footsie, um, you know, particularly the larger companies that earn quite a lot of money in, in foreign currency. That sort of well, when the pound is weak, that boosts the value of those revenues when they are, you know, translated back into into pounds. So uh, the equity market looks at these things a little bit differently. Um, but the equity market is still worried because one of the things that determines you know, what equities are worth is the is the discount rate, the long term interest rate that um, is applied to uh, the future value of corporate earnings. And that very much depends on what happens to uh, to bond market. So um, it does. In the end, it all seems to come back to to where you think interest rates are going, and you know whether or not the government would be able to finance this big increase in borrowing without seeing the pound fall to significantly lower levels that make it attractive to overseas investors.
3: As of this particular moment, the Bank of England hasn't yet intervened to put up interest rates, but it has done another intervention which is quite technical and complicated perhaps could you explain what the bank of england has actually done in layman's okay, okay. terms well, first of all,
2: you're right they, they've not raised interest rates um now raising interest rates would essentially be a, a monetary policy decision and the, the reason that you would do that is because you think that something has happened to mean that inflation is going to be higher than it would otherwise have been um now the bank of england has has resisted raising interest rates because Frankly, there's just too much uncertainty. I certainly think raising interest rates just because the the pound has fallen would be seen as a a panic move. It's not obvious that 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 would help. And the bank has taken the view that it needs to take a bit more time to assess the impact of the additional fiscal measures on demand and inflation in the economy. So um, I think it's right for the Bank of England to wait uh, in terms of its interest rate decision. Uh, a bit longer uh, to make a proper assessment of, of what on earth is going on. Um, the intervention that did on on Wednesday was actually a bit different. It wasn't about monetary policy or about inflation. Uh, it was about financial stability, uh, and in particular, it was due to a sort of crisis of of, of liquidity in the in the gilt market. And um, th- this gets quite technical. But, but what basically is, was happening was that. You know, long term interest rates, in particular, a type of interest rate called, called swap rates, which is basically you know, derivatives that depend on where people think interest rates are going over the medium to longer term. Um, those interest rates had, had shot up, which exposed pension funds that hedge in that market to all sorts of um, additional potential risks and they had to provide additional collateral that basically they needed to put up more cash. And the way that they put up more cash was by selling their holdings of long-term government bonds. So this was about a particular problem uh, at the long end of the UK government bond market, which is why that is where the Bank of England intervened. It basically said for a short period, we will buy government bonds so that pension funds have the cash that they need. And in the process, they significantly drove down those bond yields as well. Now, the, the crucial point is that that is all about financial stability is not about monetary policy. Uh, The way that it's done is not going to be inflationary. There will be a little bit more quantitative easing in the short term, but that's only temporary at some point very, very soon. uh, The Bank of England will uh, will reverse that. So this is very much about protecting the stability of the financial system It's not about reversing course on monetary policy. And indeed, I'm still pretty confident that the Bank of England will press ahead with a big rate increase in in November, better late than never. And it has said it will continue with its existing plan to start selling gilts, the so-called policy of quantitative tightening. It's just delaying that
1: a few weeks. How kind of permanent a change in borrowing conditions do you think this is? And how much does that affect uh, the government's plans? Are they looking at a very different world now in which they cannot put everything on the credit card. And and does it follow from that? We're already seeing kind of white smoke going up about uh, spending restraint, which is basically shorthand for cuts across Whitehall departments. Is there any way that they can just plough on with the plan as it is, given that guilt yields have gone up in this way?
2: Well, I understand why we're focusing on guilt yields and interest rates at the moment, but the, the absolute essential here is economic growth. So if they if the policy succeeds in boosting economic growth then the fact that interest rates are a little bit higher doesn't really matter because you know if the economy is bigger and stronger then you're going to get a lot more money in anyway uh, and the fact that you're paying a bit more in interest is is if anything actually a healthy thing i mean the alternative would be yeah if you want to keep interest rates low you have a sort of recession or you know decades of stagnation as you've got in japan i wouldn't look at japan as somewhere that's a great success, even though its interest rates are a lot lower than, than those in the UK. So I think to some extent what we're seeing is inevitable and long overdue in correct, correction interest rates, taking them back to towards more normal and, and sustainable levels. Uh, my own hunch is that the, the new normal or sort of long-term neutral rate of interest rates is probably going to be now something like between 4 and and 5%. Uh, and that's where we should expect interest rates to head in the in the next few years. But I don't think we're going to get there quite as quickly as some people in the markets think. Indeed, some people are thinking interest rates might rise as high as five or six percent. But I I don't think that is likely, partly because the economy is still struggling with a large amount of debt, including mortgage debt. So it's much more sensitive to higher interest rates than it used to be. But also because a lot of those forecasts of really big increases in interest rates, assume that there's a prolonged sterling crisis and the bank needs to respond to that. But what we've actually seen this week is, is sterling starting to to stabilize i think we're we're past peak panic hopefully in both the the currency and the bond market so the need for the bank of england to be more aggressive to restore confidence i think that you know, that that pressure is going to fade
3: We, we talked about growth and uh, obviously listeners to this podcast, I think, would all accept the importance. But we are also facing an immediate cost of living crisis. And you talked about potentially a big rate increase coming in November. I mean, that is going to seriously impact mortgage holders. Um, and, and even if they can keep some more of their money through these tax cuts, that may well be wiped out through increased mortgage payments. Um, so how how do we kind of balance these two things, the need for long-term growth and the need to immediately address this cost of living crisis and the impact that interest rates might have on people's you know, the livelihoods, the, the yeah, well, livelihoods? First of all, I
2: absolutely do not want to dismiss the concerns of those people who are facing, uh, who have to remortgage in in the next couple of weeks or months, and it, it undoubtedly a, 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 a big problem for them. Um, but there are uh, two two factors I would put against that. One is that if we don't raise interest rates, then we end up with you know higher inflation than we would otherwise have done, and ultimately probably even bigger increases in in, in interest rates. Um, and the impact on household budgets of you know say a one percent increase in in inflation is far bigger than the impact on most household budgets of a of a small increase in in, in mortgage interest rates. Um, the second point I would make is that actually, of course, most people are not refinancing their mortgages in the, in, in the next uh, few weeks. I think uh, off the top of my head, there's something like you know, 11 million mortgages in the country, but only a, no more than a few hundred thousand will be refinancing shortly. So it, it's still a relatively small number of people that will, will be hit. And I think in practice, if the, if the government gets this right and the you know, market interest rates uh, drop back, then even if the Bank of England does raise official interest rates, Further in the next few months, the the market interest rates actually determine uh, mortgage rates may well fall back soon anyway. So it, it's a it's a big hump and a, and a big shock to those people who are remortgaging. But I think if you look at the economy as a whole, it's still right for the for the bank to to press ahead and to raise rates.
1: Yeah, just sort of zooming out a little bit. Um, actually, our last guest on this podcast was uh, Edward Chancellor, who's just written a book about interest rates and the kind of especially focusing on the last 15, 20 years of long, low rates. Do you think there's a danger people have become so inured to that environment that they can't imagine a world with with higher rates? And what do you think are some of, you set up a bit of it there, but what are some of the advantages um, of having higher interest rates to, to the broader economy? I think we're focusing a lot on mortgages here, but there's, there's a lot of other things in play.
2: Well, there, there, there are lots of advantages. I mean, first of all, Thinking about inflation, the really important thing is to to keep longer term inflation expectations under control. And um, if you're in a world where, where wherever there's any sort of problem, you expect the central bank to keep interest rates lower for for longer, then that means that longer term inflation expectations are higher than there would otherwise have been. So a prolonged period of very low interest rates means higher inflation over the over the medium to longer term. And at some point, there is a price to pay for that. And arguably, we're seeing that now that, you know, as and when central banks do need to catch up, they end up having to raise interest rates by far more than they would otherwise have done if they'd if they'd raised rates a a bit sooner. But also, you know, very low interest rates are are bad for the economy. in, In other ways, I mean, they, they encourage all sorts of, you know, financial speculation, they need to you know, asset price bubbles and the um uh, if if people think that their mortgage rates are going to remain close to zero for the foreseeable future, it probably encourages them to take on, you know, too big a mortgage debt than they really should have done. So you have problems there. Um and it also allows some companies to sort of struggle on when it actually would have been better for them to uh, to fail. And this is the it's a horrible image, but it's the image of what are called, you know, zombie companies that are a big drag on productivity in the economy. But because interest rates are very low, they're able to continue to borrow to, to stay afloat. Whereas in fact, it would actually be better for the long-term health of the economy if they were allowed to go bankrupt. And you know, the, the, the resources that they're using, including the people that work for them, are actually, you know, uh, find better and, and, and you know more productive jobs. So very low interest rates can also be bad for productivity. that's been a big problem in the UK economy. Uh, at least since the the global financial crisis.
3: I think what you've sort of hinted at there is that the Bank of England is perhaps culpable with some of the decisions it's been making. Do do you think that that there's a problem there in the kind of the split between the Bank of England's decision-making and the Treasury, where they've got different interests that don't necessarily align?
2: Well, I think the Bank of England's only interest uh, should be to get inflation back to the 2% target. Uh, And everything should really be secondary to that, Um, with a possible exception from time to time of financial stability. So that's the other part of what the the Bank of England's job is really about. Um, The problem over the last few years is that the, the Bank of England seems to have taken on all sorts of other responsibilities you know whether that's in you know climate change under the the, the mark carney era uh, or more recently the idea that the, the the bank of england's job is to help the government to finance enormous amounts of borrowing and and spending which is you know, i think really dangerous because that i mean that's bad for fiscal discipline but but also it means that you know uh, at the wrong time the bank could end up printing enormous amounts of money to finance its purchases of, of government bonds and therefore making inflation higher than it should otherwise have been so um, I, I don't really see a, a clash here because i, I think that the two sides should be trying to do other things i mean it's the bank's job to worry about the overall level of inflation in the economy it's the government's job to worry about uh, growth and productivity And also the distributional impact of events like we've seen recently, the energy crisis and so on. And if as a result of that, we end up with looser fiscal policy in the the short term. So things like India price guarantee costing 60 billion, but also tighter monetary policy. I don't see that as the two pulling in different directions. I think that's each doing what they should be
1: doing. So just looking ahead now, in, in your judgment, it's somewhat a political judgment rather than an economic one. Do you think the government can simply kind of ride this out, hope that conditions stabilise? As you mentioned, do you think the pound is probably has kind of hit bottom and is now going to um, remain around where it is? Um, or can they do you think if they roll back a few of the measures, it would calm things down a lot more? Or do you think it would just show people that actually they're prepared to U turn really quickly and that would itself send a negative message? I mean, it's, it's a very difficult judgment to make, isn't it? It is.
2: I mean- but my advice would be to stay the course uh, I, I certainly wouldn't roll back any of the announcements that were made last week it's been suggested for example that they might uh, postpone or, or drop the, uh, the cut in the 45p additional rate I, I, it's not obvious to me that would send a, a positive signal to the market so that would sound you know, flip-flopping and if you fundamentally believe these things are the right thing to do then you should you should stick to them um, I think it, it wouldn't be enough just to do nothing, but equally the, the government is actually doing something. I mean, it has confirmed that the the medium term fiscal plan will will come in, in in November, and in the meantime they're going to press ahead with you know more detail on the on the supply side reforms. um Personally, I, I think that's enough. I know a lot of people sort of clamouring for you know something before then, but uh my, my sense is that the you know, the markets can wait. I mean, what they want is a is a is a medium for longer term plan and they they know one is coming uh and i think that's probably enough so i i wouldn't reverse tack on any of the individual policy announcements i i certainly by the way wouldn't sack the chancellor as some people are, are, are suggesting um uh, i don't think that, that's that would be helpful at all uh nor that he would deserve it um so i i would stay the course but you know continue to work in the background on that medium-term fiscal plan, and continuing to roll out additional supply-side
1: measures in the meantime. And Just kind of returning to my very first question about the kind of prevailing trends, are there things going on elsewhere in the global economy? Obviously, there's war in Ukraine and things, but there have been a lot of volatility, for example, with the Chinese currency. You've said the dollar is on a, on a rampage. What sorts of things that are basically out of our hands might impact the government's sort of decision tree, if you like?
3: Well, there, there
2: there are a couple of things. One is in the in the US. Um, I mean, at some point, the US is going to get start worried about the strength of the of the dollar, um, which is you know basically all time highs on various trade weighted indices. So, um, I think that might possibly prompt a rethink in policy at the US central bank, the Fed, and they might start to. Uh, Dampen expectations of further really big increases in interest rates there. So that would take uh, some of the froth out of the dollar, but also uh, put a bit more downward pressure on on bond yields, including in the UK. So that that that's one you know possible uh, development that would be helpful. Uh, the second thing closer to home is what happens to natural gas prices in in, in Europe. Um, you know, the, the biggest single element of the of the fiscal plan is of course the cost of the energy price guarantee which you know, nobody exactly knows what it's going to be um as you said earlier it's odd with obsessing about a billion or two on the tax numbers but you know the, the depending what happens to natural gas prices the the cost of the energy price guarantee could be anywhere between say 50 and 200 billion so if, if we can see further falls in natural gas prices i think that would be a you know, really big reassurance that you know, not only are we going to avoid a uh, a deep recession in, in Europe, but also that uh, that's not going to cost the government enormous amounts of money and additional borrowing. So so, so those are the two big external things I've looked for, what happens to uh, US interest rate expectations, and also what happens to natural gas prices in Europe.
3: I want to pick up on something you said, your answer to the previous question, you said, you know, that the, the Chancellor of the government should stay the course, especially if we believe that this is fundamentally the right thing to do. I suppose my question is, are we the bad guys here?
2: uh that's a good question i mean it has been put to me you know we we've, we've been calling for these policies for for decades in some cases and you know what happens if they're then implemented and and, and don't work uh yeah you know, my feeling though is that's a nice problem to have i'd i'd, rather, <laughs> you know, I'd far rather that they they tried these policies and uh if they don't work then obviously we we can stick our hands up but uh obviously i believe that they will uh you know I'm overwhelmingly confident this combination of you know, well-targeted tax cuts and supply-side reforms is the is the right thing to do. I think we need to get away from the previous fiscal orthodoxy of worrying about short-term borrowing, and instead refocus on getting debt down as a share of national income. Uh, and also I also, I actually think it's a it's a positive, a, a design feature rather than a bug that some of this stuff in the short term is is quite unpopular. Whether that's the bankers' bonus cap or the forty-five percent rate, or or you know, getting rid of planning restrictions that. You know, might run up into the dreaded nimbies. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a, a risk, and it is possible if it backfires that you know people like me and others associated with free market think tanks will get part of the blame. But, you no, know, we believe this is right. Um, so, you know, I'm quite confident to, to stand up and say, yeah, if, it, if it's wrong, blame me. But,
1: you know, we need to we need to give it a go. I wonder. Um, just picking up on that. What which policies were you most happy to see in the growth plan? Let's just leave aside tax cuts. I mean, we talked. Everyone is talking about tax cuts to death. In in my opinion, they're ignoring a lot of the other stuff in the growth plan that was actually pretty pretty positive. Um, but which a which policies are you sort of most excited about? And b which ones do you think are going to have the quickest impact on growth?
2: Well. I mean, to answer your second point first part, part of the problem here of course is supply side reforms do take a while to, to to feed through so that's why actually a lot of the of what the government has announced has been more on the demand side so the the energy price guarantee is is basically something on the demand side uh, but even that was accompanied by you know measures on the on the supply side you know allowing the extraction of uh, more fossil fuels in the short term at least that's not a longer term solution but it's something that we need to do and you know thinking more about investment in, in renewables. So so even the energy price guarantee and the, the accompanying policies had a good supply side element as well. Um, I mean looking looking forward um actually a, a lot of the tax cuts did have a, a supply side element to them. I mean it's all about uh you know increasing labor supply and I- encouraging companies to to come here and invest and, and create jobs that might not otherwise have done. So even the tax cuts had a had a supply side element to them. Um, but I think the really big benefits are going to come through from things like planning reform, uh, which isn't just about house building, it's also about infrastructure, you know, more generally. So, uh, I was listening to, to Keir Starmer earlier this week, he actually made a very good point that, you know, one reason why we've not been able to build as many offshore wind farms as we might otherwise have done is, is sort of a nimbyism and um, you know, excessive planning regulations there. So that's at least something that I agree with the Labour leader on. Uh, so, so planning reforms not just to boost house building, or for all sorts of infrastructure, and then there's a whole host of other things. I mean, the, part of the area I'm most familiar with is the is the financial sector, the the, you know, the city, uh, and there are lots of things that we can do, particularly after after Brexit, to uh, make the city more competitive and, and and more dynamic. It's it's a shame that we focused on the bankers' bonus cap, which, which really isn't a, a game changer, but there are other big things to be done in things like solvency too, which are essentially is is rules that uh, affect whether or not uh, pension funds and others can can invest as much as we would like in longer term infrastructure projects so there's lots of really exciting things there that uh, at least they excite me i mean they won't get you headlines in the popular press they won't deliver big benefits straight away to growth but i think that's where a lot of the big wins are going to be made
1: Okay, well, Julian, it's nice to end on a sort of more positive note, as I usually like to on this podcast, after such a chaotic and, and turbulent week. I should just note to listeners that we record this on a Thursday, so if the FTSE does collapse uh, over the rest of the day, it's not our fault and we didn't know. Um, Julian, thank you very much indeed. Thank you at home as ever for listening and do tune, do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. <music>